Well, this morning we are in the book of 1 John together. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we've got a big stack of Bibles over there that you're welcome to. Be good if you had one with you this morning. 1 John chapter 2, and we're beginning our time together in verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And yes, believe it or not, look at all the scripture we're going through today. Verses 18 to 29. Man, that's a big section of scripture for us, isn't it? But here's the thing, is that there is a particular focus, a centralized focus of this text, and I think that will become very plain to us, very clear to us, I think, right off the bat. So let's look at it together. Now, where we've come so far in John is we've had much instruction from John so far. And then as we looked at last week, we had a section of uh, exhortation where we had the very first imperatives given to us, what we must do. And now we're going into a section of warning, warning. So we've had our instruction, we've had exhortation, and now we have a section of warning, but it comes with its own exhortation and its own teaching, okay? So let's look at it. We're going to kind of camp out just in verse 18 for the first little portion of our time. Okay, let's look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So the sermon today is on this text. And what is the text about? The Antichrist. You know, Uh, I I grew up in a situation, well, I won't say grow up, but I grew up in my church experience in a situation where if you were to say the word antichrist, like dark clouds roll in and there's thunder and lightning and there's just uh, this ominous situation as if something is happening now here today that has never happened before. John is writing to his churches at this time saying, "Many, many antichrists have come and they're already here. This was written to thousand years ago. Two thousand years ago, the reality was already present. Let that sit in just for a second, but let's look at our text because we need to identify a couple of terms today that maybe have been identified differently for us in the recent past, but we should know what they mean properly within the context of our text for today, okay? Children, we know who that is, right? John's beloved children who is referencing believers, He wants them to know something. This is a warning, remember, it is the last hour. So we we have to focus on what that is. And then he says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And so therefore, that is how we know that it is the last hour, because many Antichrists have come. So you can see with me that John's audience, which remember was that section of Asia Minor, uh, think of those seven churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation, same area, Um, This was written to that mass, that group of churches. And they already knew before John wrote to them that there is a last hour and that there are antichrists, plural, and an antichrist, singular. They already knew this before he wrote to them. And we might ask, where did that teaching come from? How did they know that? Was that part of Jesus' teaching? Was that part of the other apostles' teaching? Who told them this? How did they know that it was the last hour because there were antichrists there? And if it was the last hour, how was it the last hour 2,000 years ago? That's a long hour. 
So let's look at a couple of these things. What I want to trace for you, um, by way of a brief survey, is to see that this teaching is indeed found in the rest of our New Testament and what it might mean if we kind of pull some ideas together to help us focus on what this does mean and what this does not mean. Okay? Uh, so we're focusing on Antichrist in the last hour. So in the passages that I'm about to reference here, let's just have our ears attuned to these concepts. Now, I don't have them on the screen for you. So if you're a note taker, you want to go back and look at these later. Right now is a perfect time for you to jot down some of these references that I'm going to give you. But I am going to read them for you. Now, it may surprise you, it may not surprise you, that the word Antichrist is used a grand total of five times in all of Scripture in four verses. And three of those times are in today's text. So the bulk of the teaching of Antichrist is today in our text. And that's only used by John in the letters of John. So what does John mean when he says Antichrist? It was a teaching that already existed. What was he referencing? So here we go. We're going to focus on Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives, sometimes called his Olivet Discourse. That's found in Matthew chapter 24. So if you want to turn there and glance at these verses with me, I recommend that you do so. I'm going to read a few of them for you. Matthew 24. Remember what we're doing so we don't lose focus, we don't lose track of why this is significant for us. It's because John is telling us about the last hour, he's telling us about the Antichrist, and they already knew about these things. How did they know? If I were to say to you, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come, and so now we know, don't we, that it is the last hour, because we know that in the presence of Antichrist, that's the last hour. How do you know all that? That's what we're looking at. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Now, Jesus left the temple, and he was going away, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. First of all, that's kind of funny. They're leaving the temple, and the disciples turn around and say, hey, look, there's the temple. But what he's saying is, look at the grandness of our great temple. And so Jesus then turns to them and says, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one uh, left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So right here in this moment, Jesus is prophesying event, an event some 40 years in the future when the temple is destroyed. So in AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and Jesus was just prophesying that event. But now he continues to talk about future events, not necessarily just wrapped up in the AD 70 event, but some other events that yet in the distant future. He says in verse 3, Matthew 24, so he sat down on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives looks directly at the temple. He would be there would be a little valley, and he's looking right at the temple, and so he's talking about these things, discussing them with him. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Oh, that's a great question. Just tell us the date, if possible. Like, what date are you coming back? And what's gonna, how do we know that that's going to be, what's going to be happening all around? We want to know. So Jesus begins to tell them lots of things, but it's always followed with some kind of imperative on the disciples, on the apostles. He says, see that no one leads you astray. That's in verse four. See that you are not alarmed. That's in verse six. 
You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, hatred, betrayal, and lawlessness. There will be false prophets. There will be false Christs who perform great signs and wonders. And then look for the one who will be the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. And you see that in verse 15. So Jesus is talking about a particular time period and that he's also talking about individuals, false prophets, false Christ, and then he's talking about an individual, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. So we're going to fast forward. Look down at verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, here's what will happen. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. And then there will appear the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And then this event will happen. Listen to this. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather all his elect from the four winds and, and from one end of heaven to the other. Some pretty great worldwide global events that are going to take place. This same situation is talked about again in a different light in Mark chapter 13. That's the Olivet Discourse there. It's also followed with some imperatives. See to it that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious. Be on your guard. Stay awake. It's also spoken of in Luke. See that you are not led astray. Do not be terrified. Straighten up. Raise up your heads. Luke adds another little portion here, and he says this. Watch for yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So not a localized event like that of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, but a global event. What is being said here? Now don't think that I'm talking, I, don't think that I don't realize that I'm talking to an audience that grew up with the Left Behind movies and the, all. I mean, there is so much to be said about this in the religious world, in the secular world. I get it. We have a lot of information coming at us. Like, I, I even go to the grocery store, and I remember one time, my total at the grocery store was $6.66. And the woman at the grocery store went, and your total will be six. Oh, you know, like, oh, I don't know. And like, maybe you should make it $6.67. So like... It, there, is, there is some kind of aura about this whole thing that people just, I get it. I get it. But there are truths in Scripture here that we must not bypass because of some of the silliness that has taken place. Are you with me on that? What does Scripture say for us? What is John's intention for his audience at that time? And what does it mean for us today? Because I will argue with you. I will tell you. It does have significance today. It's not just about looking forward to some event, but it is about the here and now what we must do as believers now today. And that's what's significant for us. That was what's significant for his readers. Yes, we are learning about what will take place, but yet there are, there are imperatives on our life for today. So what, what, what must we do with this information? So there's more. So 
in a summary of, of Jesus speaking at, at Mount of Olives. There, there are events um, that were not localized, but, uh, but were global, okay? Some events have already taken place in history. Some events have not yet taken place in history. Um, some events spoken by Jesus were um, a mystery to them at that time and didn't quite understand completely what was being said. So leaving Jesus' words, we come to the apostolic teaching, and so we're going to go to Paul. And Paul has a section here in, sec- in 2 Thessalonians 2, if you want to reference this, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Remember what we're looking for. The Antichrist, teaching about the Antichrist, and teaching about the last hour, the last days. Let's see what Paul has to add here in some understanding. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him. Now, we've already heard about a gathering together, haven't we? Jesus said right after, immediately after the tribulation of these events, he's going to send out his angels to the four corners of the earth and they're going to gather together his elect. Now, Paul says, now, regarding that day, regarding that time when that takes place, here's what we have to say. Do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Do you hear the present tense imperatives? Do not be deceived. Do not be quickly shaken. Don't be alarmed. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Pause. Do you not remember that when I was with you in person, I explained all of these things to you in detail? How did they know? How did they know about these things? Because they had been taught by the apostles, by Paul himself, the teaching regarding these last days, the Antichrist, these great figures, had been circulating and taught to the churches. He says, And you know what is restraining him now, that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Listen how this one will come with all power and false signs and wonders and with wicked deception. Power, all power. False wonders, false signs and wonders. By the way, a false sign, what's a false sign? You know, a sign signifies something. I can get a stop sign and put it anywhere I want. But it doesn't mean that, you, that that sign is supposed to be there. It's not actually pointing towards something. It means it's a sign saying, I am of God, but you're not really. It's a false sign. All power, false signs, and wonders. So therefore, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that They may be condemned with those who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So if you come down to why Paul is telling them this, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, So then, brothers, 
Here's what you must do today because of these things. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. So do you see the present tense imperative there? Knowing that all these things are going to take place, knowing that all these wicked deceptions and false signs and wonders and figures are going to happen, here's what you must do with that information. Stay true to what you have been taught and do not be deceived. Over and over again, in Jesus' words, in Paul's words, in John's words, all of this is, the tr- all of this is true. It always comes with a present tense imperative. Now, that final one that we're going to reference here that, that historically has been kind of in line with this Antichrist figure, not only the man of lawlessness, but there's another figure, the beast of Revelation, right? The beast of Revelation who, uh, now, I'm going to read this last one. Understand also, you're probably already preparing what you're going to say to me after the service about different views and takes. I'm, well, I'm a preterist. Well, I'm a futurist. Well, I'm amillennial, postmillennial, um, um, you know, premillennial, um, uh, panmillennial, right? Right. So I, I, I get it. I've, I know all those positions. I have researched all those positions. I am not explaining a position to you today. What I am doing is I'm taking our scripture that we are given this morning and I'm expounding on it, explaining it so that we might understand how we are to live for Christ today. So if you want to talk about those things, let's get the imperatives in place first about how our hearts must be in line and then we can talk about some theological speculation, which I love to do, by the way. You want to speculate about some theological positions? Let's do that. But let's get our hearts in line first and then discuss those things. So what is being said in the Beast of Revelation? How is it potentially identified here with the Antichrist figure? I'll read for you just a few verses, and then what we're going to do is I'm going to summarize these concepts and see what, what they have to do with our text for today, okay? That's where we're going. It says in Revelation 13, verses 11 through 14, Listen to, the compa- listen to how it compares with what we've read about the man of lawlessness, about the Antichrist figure, about the abomination of desolation that we've read about. Just see the parallels in the concepts. It says, And then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon, because we all know how dragons speak. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Listen to what the beast does. It performs great signs. It even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. What is his goal? What is his goal? Deception. And so what must me be prepared against to defend? We must not be deceived. Do not be deceived. That is always, always the heart of the matter. For believers, do not be deceived. Telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So a connection can be made between this man of lawlessness, the abomination of desolation, the beast of revelation, and the Antichrist. Wow, that's a lot. I know. So what about this last hour? This is very easy for us to get. I'm going to talk about this last because it's a simple concept. So we've got the idea of antichrists, plural, 
and the Antichrist. I'll explain that in just a second. But once we get this, the rest of John's text is going to flow very easy for us. Okay, so what is this last hour? 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. It says, now the Spirit expressly says in later times that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Do you see the deception again? In the teachings of demons, in the insincerity of liars, the goal is deception. Don't miss that fact. I keep pointing it out on purpose. The goal is deception and lies. 2 Timothy 3.1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Don't undermine that either. I mean, realize that it will be difficult to live in that time. It will be difficult to not be deceived. Because, man, these things are going to look good. So be prepared that you might not be deceived. 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17. You know this one, but listen to it in context of what we've been talking about. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, there it is. It always comes after, doesn't it? But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Every time there is deception and then what we must do. Deception and lies are coming, but here's what you must do. You must stay true to the word in the midst of deception. But if you don't realize deception is coming, then you're not going to be prepared. You are going to be the one who is deceived because you didn't even know to be on your guard against it, right? There are lots of things that my kids do that I am not on guard against. It happens out of nowhere, right? I, so, sometimes they just fall on the ground. I, don't, I hear a sound and I li- they just fell. I don't know. They, they just fell on the ground. I, or sometimes I trip over something. It's like you were on the opposite end of the house and all of a sudden you're under my feet. I, they do stuff that catches me off guard, but you have to be on guard in order to know how to protect yourself. If you know a punch is coming, you can block it. Maybe, unless Kevin's the one throwing the punch and you can't block it anyway. (laughs) But you get the idea? You know something is coming at you. And if you know it's coming, you know how to be prepared to block it. And guess what? The more you practice this, the better you are at blocking it. That's true as well, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, and we're going to do some summary. Uh, it says, Now these things have happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. John says the same thing. We know that now today is the last hour because look at all of this deception and these deceivers. So it must be, it is certainly the last hour. This, it, these are the days of the rebellion. It has already started. 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. So when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, let me tell you about that, okay? Let's not just keep throwing that little statement out, okay? There have been wars and rumors of wars since the beginning of human history. 
There are always wars and rumors of wars. Okay? How does that help you? What is the imperative on the Christian life for that situation other than to just say it? But now, what we must do is realize that this last hour, these last days have been basically, well, okay, let's summarize. The last hour is when? Well, basically from Pentecost until now. We have been living in the last days from Pentecost until now. Pentecost is the emergence of the church, right? The Holy Spirit was sent, the church begins to grow. I'm just picking Pentecost because that's the birth of the church. And so Pentecost to present, that's the last days. It is also tomorrow. That's still the present, right? The last days are now until it is completed, consummated. In this period of time, it is preceding the return of Jesus. And that period of time is marked by evil, by rebellion, and by deceptions. If you realize that you live in a time when there is evil, rebellion, and deceptions, it changes your perspective on how you're interacting with the world around you. Would you agree? Okay, so what about the Antichrists? Notice that I keep, I'm emphasizing the plural because we don't often re- reference, we say the Antichrist, don't we? This says Antichrists and that they were already in existence then. The Antichrists are those who claim to be of God or Jesus himself, but they deny the truth of God in Jesus Christ. What do they do? They effectively, listen to that word, effectively persuade many to believe what is false. So this includes some who are false Christs, some that are false prophets, and some who perform great signs and wonders. Great signs and wonders. That is a truth of scripture that we have to wrap our minds around. There is a power. This is left for another conversation, but I just have to reference it here. What could some of those powers and wonders be? You do realize that the idea of of magic and the idea of mediums and uh, uh, th- there, is a, there is another power that exists. For example, look back uh, in Egypt and how Moses was doing many wonders and Pharaoh's magicians were able to do wonders as well. Now, unless you believe that was a fairy tale, you have to acknowledge that there is a power that is from the demonic realm and then there is a power that is of God. The power that is of the demonic realm, we are told to stay away from, which is where mediums come from. That's where they get their power from. So that's why scripture says to stay away from them. So over here, though, we have the power of God. There is another power at work in this world. Don't let anti-supernaturalism overtake you to think that these things are fairy tales, like in Encanto, okay? My kids have started watching Encanto, all right? There's ma- the house is magic. Okay, everything, it, the, it, magic helps us to understand, in a sense, the supernatural world that exists, yes. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge there is a demonic power and then there is a power of God. So false signs and wonders and, and miracles in, in, in this sense, that things that I don't understand how that came to be, doesn't necessarily mean that was of God. That's how it's a false sign. Do you get it? Do you get what I'm saying? All right, so the Antichrist are those who are, by the word, that word, the word Antichrist just means against Christ. That's all the word means. It just means against Christ. Those who are against Christ. And so 
what about this Antichrist figure then? Let's look at him. The Antichrist is the one who claims to be God but denies the truth of God in Jesus Christ. He will effectively persuade many to believe what is false. How? With great authority, with power, false signs, and wonders. And there is, in my opinion, great indication that a lot of these events surrounding this figure have yet to unfold in human history. There are too many great global events that have not yet unfolded. And so this figure has yet to be revealed to us. There are different takes on that, I understand. From my understanding and my position, it seems as though there are too many things yet to unfold to say that that figure has already come and gone. Where does that leave us in our text? That's verse 18. Now, the next little bit is going to roll off very easy having that discussion under our belt. Now, if I had read that and just moved on, all of us would have defined the last hour differently. All of us would have identified and defined Antichrist differently. All of us would have identified the Antichrist differently. Now, we all need to be on the same page with the same definitions in order to move forward in our conversation. Would you agree? And so that's what our time has been spent doing thus far. So now what we can do is begin to move through the text and we can realize that what's being said to us is actually very plain. It is very clear. It is very easy to understand. Now, before we do that, let me just make one side note here. Antichrists and the Antichrist. Have you ever known a figure in history that Christians have said, oh, he's the Antichrist? He is the Antichrist. Yeah, people said Nero was the Antichrist, and they had great evidence to say that. People said that, well, there was a Jewish understanding of the Antichrist too, called the Abomination of Desolation, and many said, many said and I think accurately so, that Antiochus Epiphanes was that figure. But yes, but he was not the figure, but he was a figure. Because the figure has yet to come, even though there were many figures preceding him. So there may be figures who rise up with great power and influence of great deception. Yes, possibly before the great figure comes. Who is that great figure going to be? I'm not sure. When is that going to happen? I don't know. A lot of people think they know, and they write books about it. I don't know. Jesus said we're not going to know. But you do need to understand the times, and the times we live in are the last days, and there is deception all around us. And it could even happen with false signs and wonders. So be prepared that you are not deceived. So let's go on with what John has to say to us today. So we know that antichrists have come. We know that the antichrist figure will come. We know that we are living in the last days today. So, okay, what, is, what do we do now? Now that we know that, what are we to say? So, Here's what John has to say, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain to all that they are not of us. Okay, who is John, talk Excuse me. Who is John talking about? He is talking about these also identified as antichrist. They are against Christ, obviously. But also these people that we have previously identified as those secessionists. They were at one time part of the church, but they broke away by their teaching, and they said, we're going to form our own thing. 
And now John is telling them, listen, a lot of people have left your church and they believe a lot of different things right now. But let me tell you this, the reason they left you and the reason they believe different things now is because they were never part of you to begin with. Those who abandon the faith, that is the faith properly defined, prove that they were never of the faith to begin with. But there can be many who say, I know God, I know him. Does everybody who says, I know God, actually know God? Oh, boy. How many sermons have said that word for word so far out of John? I'm going to try again. Does everybody who says, I know God, actually know God? Has John been very upfront telling us that? Yes. These people say, I know God. This is what is true of him. Come believe what we believe and be with us and not with them. They were attempting to deceive them, to lead them astray. John is helping them understand why this is occurring. Why is this occurring? Why is the church fragmenting? Why are so many people believing so many heretical things? If you don't have that question today, you're not understanding the world we live in. How can there be so many people who say they know God and yet seem to know nothing of God? How can there be so many people that say, I know God, and you say, well, what is the gospel? And they have no clue. No clue. How do we understand this situation? Those who depart, who embrace these heretical teachings, prove and make on public display the fact that they were never of the faith to begin with, and that's how that occurred because we are living in the last days and there is much deception and deceivers. What's very interesting and that we must wrap our minds around as well is that the deceivers come from within the church. They were of you and they left, but now they say they are of God and now what they want to bring you is deception. And that's the best way to deceive, by the way, is to come in, to be one with them, to build up relationship, and then all of a sudden to begin teaching what is false. That's a great way to deceive. So they separated. They worshiped with us, though. They ate with us. They sang with us. They listened to the same preaching as us. I had them over to my house. Right. Just because you have a friendship with someone doesn't mean they have friendship with God himself. It's difficult in the, in the area that we live in because relationships are so strong. If you've never lived anywhere else, you don't realize how tight families and relationships are, even friendships here. It is very different. There is a closeness of community and people that is very precious. It's a great thing. But sometimes the way this can get in the way is embracing the fact that whatever they say, I have to take as truth and genuine. If they say they're a believer, who am I? If they believe this crazy thing, well, they're still a believer. I just, you know, bless their heart. But at the same time, we must understand there are those who truly know God in truth, in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there are those who claim to know God. And the reason they departed abandoned the faith, 
and the church is because they were never part of it to begin with. How can that be? Because we are in the last days and because many deceivers are in the world. There are many people being deceived and there are many people deceiving and we have to be on guard against it. So you see how this is a warning, right? This is a warning, isn't it, to us? Yes, it is. Here's what we experience in the church today. The church that stays true to the gospel of Jesus is going to experience this situation. The church that stays true to Jesus and the gospel, to the scriptures, is going to experience people coming, staying around for a while, recognizing that they believe differently, and then departing and have only bad things to say about us. It not only will happen, it has happened. Any church that stays true to the gospel is going to experience this type of conflict because we are in the last days and many deceivers have gone out into the world. And who do they want to deceive, by the way? People who already are lost in their deception? No, we, we don't even need to bother them. They're fine. Who do we need to deceive? The ones who have not yet been deceived. Those, they are our target. So you are the target. If you know you're targeted and you know there are deceivers in the world targeting you, does this change how you interact with the world around you? Let's look at verses uh, 20 through 23. But you, so that was them. They've left. We know why they left. But here's you. You have been anointed by the Holy One. You're different than them. You've been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know this, you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And no lie is of the truth. But who, the liar, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who that denies the Father and the Son. Oh, that is so simple, isn't it? Look at that definition. This is the Antichrist, the one who is against Christ. Wouldn't you know it? The one who denies the Father and the Son is the Antichrist. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You have been anointed. This word anointed is the same, it's, it's the word we get the word for, for Christ, but it's, the word is, is chrisma, anoint, anointing, but, and then Christos, uh, which is Christ. He is the anointed one. So we have the anointing and the anointed one who is Christ. What is this anointing? You have been anointed, but who has been anointed? All those children, all of his children, all the believers have been anointed by God. And again, man, this has a lot of uh, controversial things in it, doesn't it? There, because in our current world, there are many charismatic philosophies of theology of how the Spirit works and you await a particular anointing by God. But the scripture here is very clear that all those who are children of God have been anointed by God. You have that anointing from God. What is the anointing? What is that? Well, it literally means to pour oil upon. That's what anointing means, to pour oil upon and to appoint or to assign to a particular task or a particular mission. 
and that is you. You have been anointed, you have been appointed, you have been assigned by God himself. So as the anointed one, as those who have been assigned by God on a particular mission, you have a target on your back as those to be deceived. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, that is us, all believers without exception, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What John is gonna go on to say is that the knowledge of God comes by means of this anointing. In other words, if you have not been anointed, appointed, assigned by God, by the Holy Spirit, you will not have the knowledge of God. The way you have knowledge of God comes by means of the anointing of God by his spirit, which all the children of God have. Do you like that, Jim? Yeah, he's, there you go. What this is saying then is this, to deny the central truths of who Jesus is and what he has done proves that a person does not know the Father because those who have been anointed by God have the teaching of God and know who he is. Therefore, if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. But if you embrace the Son as the one sent by the Father, then you have the Father also. Does this make sense? You can't be denying who Jesus is and yet say, I know the Father because the Father and the Son are one. And all these coming against them in those churches, these secessionists were saying, we know the Father, but Jesus Christ never came in the flesh. There is a special knowledge that we've received and we want you to get it too. And if you just come and just meet with us, come and, come and join us and believe the way we believe, we'll show you this special knowledge. And many times this is how cults happen and a cult that meets long enough, by the way, turns into a denomination. That all, all you need, I did some research on that because Amanda asked me one time, and I said, I have no idea what makes a distinction between a cult and a religion. All it has to do with is length of time. That's it. That is the only distinction. So at one time, all religions were a cult. But if you are a cult long enough, you become a religion. Early on, Christians were seen as what? A cult, an offshoot of Judaism. Hmm. It is the last hour. This is my summary of what we've read so far. It is the last hour and there are many antichrists at work in the world and in our midst. Therefore, we must be prepared for these deceivers and their deceptions. Do you see that in the text with me this morning? This is John's point to writing to them. If his point was not in preparing them, then why was he writing to them? So let's look at, there's three points here that we're gonna get as we end this text. Um, verses 24 and 25, there's gonna be a point here. Verses 26 and 27, there's gonna be a point here. In verses 28 and 29, there's gonna be a point there because they are all, all three of them, all three of these two verse groupings all have an imperative in them. That is something that we must do. There are three things that we must do with this knowledge, and John is telling us. Are you ready? Okay. 1 John 2, 24 and 25. What do we do with this? Here's the first imperative. I have it in orange. The actual imperative is in orange. Okay? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
if, you have heard from the, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What is the first thing? I would summarize that by saying this. In the midst of deceivers and their deceptions, the first thing we must do, we must do, is hold on to the hope of heaven. How does this help? And how is John saying that? You have to let what was said to you from the beginning abide in you. And the word abide means to remain in you, to be constant in you, to not let it go. What must we not let go inside of us? The promise that he made to us, which is eternal life. Many deceptions have come into the world and into the church, and it kind of sounds like this. The best hope that you have for life is the life that you're living now. Your best life, now. That's as easy as it comes. Do you see how easy the deception comes in? This is it. This is what you got. So live it for all it's worth. This is your life. Live it. And so sermons become about life today. Your life, living life, doing life. This is life. Life, this is the one you got. Do with it what you can. Life. This life. A proper orientation of our minds is not to focus on the here and now as the end-all be-all of the Christian life. But actually, our focus is to remain on heaven. If your focus is on heaven and the eternal life, then you're not going to be so concerned when persecutions come to you or when your church fragments and you must remain true to the gospel even though people are leaving and they can't deal with it, they can't cope with it because the gospel is offensive, because it tells you that you're not good enough but Jesus Christ is. No, 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 I want to be the one that's good enough. So tell me how to live a better life that I might be acceptable to God and that's what sermons become. Here's how to live better for God so that God might accept you There is a promise from God that you must keep in the front of your mind and at the center of your heart. And that hope is eternal life. That is the promise that was made to us. Abide in that promise. You can't set your hope on your income. Yeah, you learned that already, didn't you? Every person in this room has learned that. You can't set your hope on your income, on a government, on a leader, on your health. You can't have hope in anything now, but the deceivers want to tell you, have hope in these things. And I'll tell you, six sermons on how to have God-honoring finances so that you can live your best financial free life now, today. The focus is all on now, here, this. Of what implication does that have for my heart? I want to know the condition that my heart must be in to give God glory with every breath that I have because I don't know how many I have left. I am hoping for eternity with every breath that I breathe. And so when these deceivers are out in the world, I say, go ahead and try your deceptions on me, even if that means persecution on me and my church and my family. I have heaven in mind. That is my hope, and that is the promise that he gave me.
It's not a choice. It's not something that you should do because it's a good idea. It's an imperative from Scripture. What does it say? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Do it. Let it abide in you. Let it be in your heart and in your mind. Okay, so there's a second thing. The second thing is found in verses 26 and 27 with the second imperative. 1 John 2, 26 and 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But if the anointing you receive from him abides in you, then you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing teaches you about everything, and this is true, and it's no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. In other words, you have no need, if you are a Christian, you have no need of anyone to teach you because you have the Spirit of God. So you better stop taking your notes because there is nothing to teach you. Is that what it means? Or think about it this way. John is writing a letter to them, teaching them that no one needs to teach them. If that were true, then he shouldn't even have written a letter teaching them. So obviously we know what it doesn't mean, right? He doesn't mean you have no need of anyone to teach you. What he's saying is that there is not a special knowledge that you need to arrive at that God has not yet revealed to you. Where have we had that revelation given to us? Wow, I mean, I thought that response was going to be overwhelming, but I had a bunch of blank stares. It's not a trick question. Where has that been revealed to us? In the Word, in the Bible. Is that why we must focus our teaching on the Bible itself? So in this big world of conflict and all these things going on in the world, and we're being deceived by deceivers, what is the best thing that we can do? The only thing that we can do, where should we be focusing our attention? On the word that God has given us. I know that there are many who are thirsty for political sermons. Giving out conservative concepts that we can all applaud to. That is not what's going to protect you from deceivers and deceptions from arising in the church, trying to lead you off course. But it'll definitely get people to come to your church. So if you want to go and start a church, just call it political church, PC. So, and you'll have people come, no doubt about it. It doesn't mean we disregard those things, but yet what we do is we glean the principles from Scripture so as to live in the world that we live in today. Without the word, you cannot even understand the things that are happening in the world around you. And so you must filter all these things through the word. We need the word first. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14 identifies the fact that we must have teachers, that God has given teachers to the church. Why? Listen to what it says. And then we'll move to our last point. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's why. Here's what he says. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
What is teaching in the church for? To protect you from deception. We must be a people that recognize that we need to be protected from deceptions by means of the teaching of God's word. And then finally, the thing that we must do. Verses 28 and 29. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence not to shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The final thing that we must do is hold on to the holiness of God. If we're holding on for remaining steadfast in our view of God's holiness, it will remind us of the unholy nature of our sinfulness. You must have a holy view of God before your eyes always. Otherwise, he says, when he appears, where is your confidence coming from that you might not shrink in shame? What would cause you to have shame at the coming of the Lord Jesus? That you're not living the way you should. That's what causes you shame at his coming. My heart was not where it should be. My life was not holy as it should be. When is the Lord Jesus coming? I'm not sure. But what I do know is that we need to be ready for it to happen at any moment. And that readiness comes from a heart that is being purified by the Spirit of God, a heart that is walking in obedience, a, a mind that is seeing the holiness of God ever before them, a, a, a person that is hoping in heaven, not here, a person that is focusing all of their attention on the truthfulness of Scripture, a person that wants to live a holy life before a holy God. This is where John wants us to go with this talk about the Antichrist. There are many Antichrists. There are many deceivers and deceptions. So what must you do? What must we do as God's people? Be prepared that you are not deceived. Let's pray together.